0: more so in the future. But I got a feeling that barcode, even though it's been there for 50 years, I think it's gonna hang around for quite a lot longer because these other things aren't gonna be as cheap. I mean, we're talking about fractions of a, of a cent uh, to, to put them on the merchandise. In the world of technology,
1: heroes are everywhere. They're overcoming disruption, delivering sustainable outcomes, and fearlessly forging the future to solve what's next. Join me, Ed McNamara, as we meet the people and businesses driving change in our constantly disruptive world. This is Innovation Heroes, a podcast brought to you by SHI. Innovation Heroes is a production of SHI. See how we can help your business solve what's next with stress-free, scalable solutions that you and your people will love. Visit shi.com slash solve what's next today. Look around you and you'll likely see a barcode or two. They are everywhere. They're on drink bottles, food packages, books, and more. Barcodes are scanned more than 10 million times a day, and nothing sounds more like being in a supermarket than that familiar beep, beep, beep of barcodes being scanned. But for the younger generation, you might not remember a time without barcodes. Grocery store clerks needed to manually change the price sticker on each product every time the price changed one way or another. Welcome back to another episode of Innovation Heroes, the podcast exploring the people and businesses driving change in a constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. Paul McEnroe was part of developing the Universal Product Code, or UPC, commonly known as the barcode. He was an engineer at IBM at the time when a group of supermarkets requested a technology like this to make the checkout process more accurate and efficient. To get barcodes functional, Paul also was part of teams developing the handhold pistol grip scanner that reads barcodes from a distance as well as new communications and other systems. Paul, thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure. So, as I mentioned, barcodes are all around us in our day-to-day lives, but I'm sure most of us either don't know or haven't given any thought to what those black lines mean and how the technology works. Can we start very simply with what is a barcode? How does it work at a basic le- basic level? And why was it designed that way?
0: Sure, uh, a barcode is uh, a, just a way to put a mark of some type onto a uh, a product, uh, a package uh, packaged product, or a product that uh, is actual maybe a piece of fruit or something like that, and to be able to identify it uh, by some method, which is typically a number, and the bars. Uh, are an easy way for uh, one to be able to set up a scanner to read what the numbers would be rather than trying to decipher the different characters. So for every character, we have two bars and a couple of spaces that we have put into a code. And uh, we, in order to uniquely identify all the different products that would be in a different supermarket or other retail store, we allocated or uh, McKinsey and company that was hired by the supermarkets allocated, uh, five digits for a manufacturer and five more digits for, uh, a product. And, uh, that works out to be a huge amount of inventory. And so we set up, uh, black and white bars to identify the different, uh, numbers that would be assigned to each product. So each product gets a singular number everywhere it goes. And, uh, we, we have this code that makes it easy for us to uh, read it uh, very quickly at the check stand.
1: So uh, uh, when it was first designed, I mean, a lot of us can, I was, I was already working at SHI when we went with dealt with Y2K. Did you have any, any technology limitations like that where you kind of laugh about now where it's like, well, that would never be a problem
0: now, but did you have any limitations based on the equipment being used? Oh, sure. Uh, lots of, lots of it. Uh, you know, uh, the, the first uh Symbol was actually, uh, invented by, uh, another gentleman, uh, uh, about 20 years before us. Uh, and that was a bullseye code, which was easier to scan, but, uh, it didn't work. Uh, and, uh, one of the reasons it didn't work is for the reason you just asked the question of, uh, it was very difficult to get a good light source that would illuminate it mm-hmm. and, uh, that you could, uh, also have it be, uh, precise enough, small enough, uh, and have enough resolution that you could reliably read it. And that was a big problem with that uh, bullseye or circular code that had been invented back in the 1940s. Uh, and even if they had a perfect, uh, light source, it wouldn't have worked very well. However, our code uh, did work very well, but it did need a good light source. And that light source was, uh, a laser, a, a, a helium neon, Uh, half a milliwatt, very, very small uh, laser light that became inexpensive. And before that, people tried airplane landing lamps. And uh, my joke (laughs) was that uh, it would defrost all the food that uh, came out of the freezer as it went across the check stand. Uh, So that was one thing. Other things were communications, the the way to get the scanned signal to the back room of the supermarket, and then back again to the check stand uh, and do that for every check stand in the store, up to 40 in a great big cash and carry store, uh, and do it very fast, that required new technology and required more new technology to record the data and read it back fast enough. And that again, uh, wasn't available earlier. And we pulled all that stuff together and uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to do it uh, at the time and 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 for cost, for cost, we were just coming into the beginning age of integrated circuits and that made the circuitry to analyze all this scanning stuff uh, much cheaper. Uh, it, it was very rudimentary. 300 circuits per integrated circuit and now you have what 300 million circuits in an integrated circuit but we had just 300 period but it did make it cheaper than having one and uh so that was uh, th- those were things that were extremely different uh at that time I love that you gave me the perfect segue and we're going to get back
1: to airplane landing lamps in a second. And you probably know why um, after this question. So, so you're originally from Dayton, Ohio, which is home to um, NCR, you know, then called national cash register company. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, is this like having the Beatles all grow up in Liverpool at the same time? Like, was this meant to be, you know, when you, when, can you tell us about the very the the origin story of the barcode and, and where were you? and, And where did you get this idea from? And, is there any tie into the fact that (laughs) the largest cash register company in the
0: world is, is in the same town that you're from? You know, uh, there's a a much bigger tie than you might imagine. (laughs) uh when i was a kid growing up uh in dayton uh my parents didn't work there but uh, my buddy's parents did and uh, uh ncr had a place called old river which was uh, one of the nicest uh recreational uh corporate uh things uh, going on anywhere around the country so i went swimming and playing golf there and so on and so forth as just a little kid and uh, when i graduated from the university of dayton i had the honor of being the uh Valedictorian and the uh, speaker, uh, guest speaker, was the uh, guy named uh, Robert Ullman, who was the chairman CEO uh, of National Cash Register, and of course mm-hmm. they're a huge company. They had almost ten thousand people there in Dayton, Ohio, right. and uh, so. I got to know him because we had a lot of dinners together during the graduation ceremonies and so on. And he actually offered me a job uh, when I any time <laughs> down the road. And uh, so then uh, <clears throat> pass on ten years. And uh, I've got 10 more, I I went to graduate school and then I went to IBM and I was at IBM for nine years doing uh, different kinds of work on computer input output systems, mostly for computers, scanners, readers, printers, that kind of thing, displays. And uh, then uh, IBM uh, felt that, gee, we're just building plain computers, and uh, we don't think that the uh, growth uh, opportunity for computers is sufficient for our growth to continue at its same rate. So, we want to expand the role of, that IBM has, and we want to get on the periphery of computers. Uh, so, we want to look at applications that will require more computing to be done, but that we're not challenging today. And so, uh, the CEO of IBM, Frank Carey, very famous guy, uh, said, go to Silicon Valley and buy me a half a dozen companies that are on the periphery of computers. And, uh, his staff told him, no, Frank, you don't understand. Uh, the IBM culture wouldn't allow that. Uh, the white shirts, the blue suits, the red ties, the black wingtips. No, <laughs> the, the, the staff will quit the next morning after you hire by the company. And so, uh, he said okay well then go to somebody at ibm and uh paint a red fence around them an imaginary fence uh so that they don't have to operate like we make all the mainline ibm development people operate because that wouldn't allow them to get started in a startup situation so treat them like a startup within the company so they approached me by luck and uh i uh was asked to find a peripheral job, uh, a, a peripheral opportunity uh, to uh, tackle for IBM. And uh, because of my experience with NCR, you know, I did look at banking and I looked at airline reservations and so right. on as other systems, but I kept coming back to National Cash Register and uh, they had 95% of the market at point of sale. And I wow. thought, how easy is it? going to be to go after that look at it's all identified and they've got great big uh cast iron machines that weigh 500 pounds that have six printers in them and uh you know they're they've been building them for 100 years with high quality and all that but uh they're obsolete and they're not easily convertible and uh with uh integrated circuits with uh you know the pc wasn't to be around for another 10 years but I could see putting a thing like a PC on the checkstand and uh, hooking it up uh, to the back room. And so uh, that's what I said I would like to go after that market. And I approached the IBM senior executives as if they were venture capitalists. And uh, they accepted my proposal and they gave me money, not a lot 300,000 the first year, a million the second year, 3 million the third year. That's what I asked for at that point, if it didn't right. work, you know, it'd be the end of it. And, uh, so they gave me that and, uh, they said, go. And, uh, that's when we, ident- I, I could see that the retail and uh, supermarket people were calling for item identification. And I had been working in scanning for most of the previous nine years. And so I went and hired a team within IBM, um, uh, pulled them together in a laboratory, which was, had an empty manufacturing plant next to it, namely North Carolina. And uh, we came up with the, with the product. And it was influenced heavily by my background and experience with NCR.
1: See, so a a beginning in Dayton, Ohio, and then a continued success in North Carolina. This is sounding more and more familiar to me, (laughs) but we'll get back to that. Let's talk, let's talk about that team that you, that you hired in your book, um, you write about internally hiring a group of of seven engineers that were some were considered difficult to manage in other parts of the company. Like, why did you consider this an advantage? And and what do you think the innovation of the barcode should tell us about like working in a team versus creating something alone?
0: Yeah, I think a team is the real key to the thing. And and you might notice that uh, on my book, uh, on the line right under the title of the book, I put the uh, the word team. It's a, it's a team yeah. effort uh and uh i I think that was very critical and it's yes it is true some of the people that i hired had been uh you know, uh, some other people didn't want to hire them because they were harder to manage. Well, one of the reasons they were harder to manage is they were individual contributors. They were brilliant people who uh, were challenged by uh, engineering itself. Uh, they 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 weren't so good at standing up, explaining things uh, or interacting and uh, socializing and all that kind of thing. but uh, they were brilliant, and they had a history of uh, inventions and patents. And they had, uh, I just had to find the ones that had the right experience. And I was quite fortunate in that regard. Uh, IBM had just opened their Raleigh, North Carolina facility a couple of years before. They bought 600 acres down there and built uh, you know, I mean, by the time we got done, I think we had uh, 150 to 200 acres under roof. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a large, very large facility. Feeling overwhelmed by all the buzz? Think Gen AI might be a game
1: changer, but don't know where to start? SHI has you covered. We're rolling out a new series of executive briefings and workshops focused on generative AI. These aren't just any briefings. They're your roadmap to innovation designed by technology experts you can trust. These five new offerings dive deep, exploring what AI runs in, what it runs on and what it's used for. From establishing your own Gen AI program from the ground up, to high-level overviews of Gen AI in cybersecurity and the Microsoft ecosystem, there's a briefing custom-built for your needs. So what's your next move? Contact your SHI Account Executive today, or head to shi.com to request your briefing.
0: Your journey into generative AI begins now. So, uh, I went down, I, I was asked to, you know, I started the thing in North, in, uh, Northern California and, uh, but, uh, we didn't have any manufacturing facilities available in California. And so, uh, when I made my proposal, they asked me to go to North Carolina and do, do the development work there. And, uh, so I, I did that and, uh, I found, uh, for example, uh, two very, very bright engineers that were from a plant in Endicott, New York, which is, I mean, I'm sure it's a beautiful place and so on. I've been there and it is a beautiful place, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's cold and it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not a place I would particularly want to, you know, spend a long time, uh, in the snow and everything. Uh, and it's, it's pretty remote as well. And, uh, so, uh, I uh, saw that these people have worked up there, and then they transferred down to North Carolina because they wanted to spend their later years in a nice, warm climate and right. so on that they have in North Carolina. And uh, so these guys had 20 years experience in IBM working in printers and communications. Communications, I mean just sending signals over telephone lines to Uh, printers and uh and other uh devices and in doing that you learn about errors because you get errors going over phone lines and so they learned about error detection and error correction and encoding because you send encoded signals over telephone lines and so uh the people that i uh talked to um Back in North Carolina, that had these experience, they were very exciting to me. One of those was a, a gentleman named George Lauer, who uh, was my key engineer on the uh, scanner. I put him uh, as the lead engineer on the scanner. But uh, you know, these people had uh, been at IBM for quite a time. They had a great deal of respect in the engineering community, uh, and they made quite a lot of money. And so they ended up working for younger. Uh, engineering managers hmm. who didn't make as much money and it was always kind of a problem because you know you're worried about gee i'm making uh, way more than the guy i work for and he's the one that's got to give me a raise and uh, is he going to feel comfortable giving me a raise which already right. i'm make it more than he is you know he wants a raise instead and also uh they were just a little uh fussy about being told how to do and what to do uh by some younger guy and so on so th- th- they weren't bad people or anything else like that I mean the opposite they were very very good people very contributory people and so on but they the, the management issues uh there were management issues uh, associated with all of that But I didn't worry about that. I just went and took the best uh, seven engineers I could get. The seventh one I found up in 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 Minnesota working on a project that had tried this kind of thing earlier and failed. But I saw what he had proposed and I thought, boy, close enough. That's (laughs) brilliant. He was a little ahead of his time, and now another year or two had passed, and I thought we could really implement his ideas. That that guy's name was Roger Kaus, K-A-U-S. Anyway. I pulled, pulled these seven people together and, uh, we, we stayed together, you know, for most of the time, one or two of them left after a couple of years, but most of them were around for, uh, the whole period I was around. And, and now I started in 69, the supermarket Institute put their committee together in 70. Uh, the code was, uh, we had done the code by 71 and, uh, in fact, there's an appendix I put in the book for all those technical people that want to read that. Uh, it's at the back of the book and you don't have to bother with that if you just want to read the main part of the book. But uh, it, it, it describes the code and, and what we did and how we picked it out and everything else like that in, in uh, technical detail, all the technical detail anybody would want. And I had published that very appendix as a book and authored it uh co-authored it with another gentleman in 1971. so it's all old wow. it, it, it is yeah. verbatim old I didn't rewrite it that's the that that's the 1971 uh book that I put in as an appendix in in the barcode book so uh people can study that but anyway we did that in 71 by 73. Uh, Our code was one of uh, seven finalists that had been selected, uh, and uh, ours was chosen as the winner. And so uh, from that point forward, we could see that, yeah, it was really going to go places. But uh, the team of those seven people had all the characteristics they needed to uh, come up with the code and and get scanning it successfully and, and so on. And I was fortunate enough that IBM had... Uh, a really great uh, set of people to choose from to uh, bring into the organization.
1: Absolutely. And and maybe my Beatles analogy is not too far off base that that's from, from 69 to 73. That's a, that's a lot of productivity in a really short amount of time. So you you, you definitely had the, the right team there. Yes. And then
0: um, I, I continued working on it with the same team. Of course, we grew it to much bigger numbers until 77, until the middle of 77. So, Uh, it, it took, uh, eight years basically to, to do the job. That's pretty stable.
1: Um, when new technology is introduced, it's often initially feared or rejected by the public. Um, stick it one more time with the Dayton, Ohio, his biography about the Wright brothers, um, who hail from Dayton. Um, they're, they're, David McCullough talks about how people objected to the bicycle because it because of what it would do to society. It would keep people away from church. It would keep them too far away from the the farm. And you think today, like who could have who could have objected to that? And I kind of look at the barcode and you mentioned in our pre-interview that the grand opening of using the barcode at one of your test stores was was not a success. They had picket lines out front, and then 18 different states passed laws against using the scanner. And what was the pushback initially to 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 the barcode and and something that is just so widely taken for granted today.
0: Yes, Uh, I'm going to answer that very directly, but I have to refer back to your previous uh, part. (laughs) Don't let me forget uh, about uh, your comments on the Wright brothers and David McCullough. Uh, You know, I I had dinner with David McCullough uh, about uh, about a decade ago, uh, maybe not quite so. And I talked to him about the possibility of writing a co- a book uh, about it. And uh, I even asked him if he would write the book, the barcode, you know, if I could <laughs> tell him about it and he would write the book. And David said, know I, I, that that wasn't in the cards but he, he really <laughs> was very very encouraging to me about writing the book and uh i uh i really his book on the wright brothers uh was one of my favorites my mother who was born in the 19th century uh remembers uh, the events that he describes in the book as a citizen of Dayton going out and watching the Wright brothers fly their plane in a cow pasture uh Huffman field in Dayton Ohio in uh in 1908 1909 1910 12 uh, wow. in that time frame uh and and, and she went to school at uh, the school where the Wright brothers sister was a teacher <laughs> in, in right. Dayton uh, at the time, uh, which is pretty interesting anyway, uh, back Amazing. at the ranch. Yes, we did have uh, a lot of troubles, uh, with, uh, social troubles basically, uh, with, uh, the introduction of the code. And you're right. The first system that we installed, one of those seven guys was, uh, named Alex Soshenko. I sent him up to the opening, the grand opening, our first store. And this was in mid 1974. And it was Tyson's Corner, Virginia, a Giant Supermarket, and uh, so uh, he called me up in the morning, and I, of course I was waiting by the phone to hear that the store had opened beautifully and everything was working great. And he said, <laughs> "Paul, the store—they can't even open. There's a picket line out outside, and so that the, the, they were picketing for the the, the biggest." concern that anybody had. And that was that prices were being removed from the items in the store. Until then, every item had to have a price on it because otherwise the clerk, a checkout clerk had no idea what to charge for it. So Campbell's soups got a little stamp on the top and uh, Wheaties got one on the side and so on and so forth. And, uh, so, uh, the labor unions had, uh, arranged to have uh, picketing done and uh, nobody wanted to cross the picket line. So the store couldn't open. However, uh, two or three days later, it did open it people just lost the energy, I think, to keep the picket lines going. And it just, it just kind of fizzed and, and the store opened. Uh, but that was the first of, uh, of, of many of those kinds of issues. And, uh, there, there were, the other issues were, uh, such things as, uh, well, what are you going to do, um, about laser safety? Uh, that, that was, was a big issue too. And, um, uh, we, we, I had to do a testing, uh, to prove that the accumulation of light from a laser, even a low power laser over many, many years, uh, mm-hmm couldn't cause a problem. And we did that. I, I had to go, there's a little section in the book called monkey business. I had to go buy rhesus monkeys in Africa and send them to, uh, the the number one, uh, set of, uh, gurus on laser laser safety, which was Stanford research Institute in Palo Alto. Okay. And I sent them out there and they tested the laser, the monkeys and everything. And then, all of a sudden they sent me the monkeys uh without notice (laughs) you can imagine (laughs) what it's like the ibm loading dock you got a you know a truckload of monkeys that uh (laughs) are coming as another story but uh anyway the uh the, the the price of uh of coming off the merchandise was uh, the biggest singular problem and there 18 states did pass laws that uh regulated that i won't say they were against but they were kind of against the, the barcode and and because they said most of the most of them said if you have a scanner in your store a barcode scanner then you must put the price on the merchandise. If you don't have a scanner in your store, you didn't have to put the price on the merchandise. Well, of course, if you went to the trouble to spend the money to put a scanner in your store, then you wanted to avoid the expense of having to go put a price on the merchandise because that was the main reason for doing it and have your automatic inventory control and so on and so forth. And so uh, that had been a big factor Uh, and, different governments had different worries about it. I went around explaining to them how we were going to, uh, you know, have a check, uh, register, uh, printed out that would show, you know, you bought Wheaties, uh, medium size, uh, and, uh, it cost 37 cents or whatever it was. And, uh, so you got that. And, uh, then it turned out, uh, that, in one of our test stores before the giants thing, uh, was in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And, uh, mm-hmm. I was up there visiting at the same time uh, the Canadian government sent, uh, an officer over to, uh, consider, uh, what was happening at the store and whether the Canadian government ought to get involved. And this gentleman, uh, was interviewing the customers of the store and the prices had been removed and they were using our scanner and he asked a little old lady who was leaving the store with her basket, uh, pushing her basket and so on, carrying her cane. And, uh, he said to her, uh, gee, uh, are you upset that the prices are off the merchandise here in this store? And, uh, the lady said, Oh no, as a matter of fact, I love it. And he said, why? And she, he, she pulled out her check slip and she said, he said, look here, uh, I can see how much, uh, each item cost, and I see a perfect description right. right next to the price. Before, I just got a big, long slip, and it had numbers on it, and that's all, I had no idea. You know, I made it that 47 was it. cents, 57 cents, $1.40, $2.30, $5.50, whatever. They had no idea what the items were. But she right. said, now, I can take this slip and walk down the street to the next store and compare the prices with their prices <laughs> on the, which are, of course, still listed, you know, stamped on the, on the product, uh, but I can compare and see what I paid before. I could never do that. I couldn't remember what I paid for this item or that item at the other store. And this is much better for me. Well, we never heard another problem from the Canadian government. Uh, and, but we did hear other issues. And, but I told that story and, and others to different legislatures that I went around and visited. I remember particularly going to Montana and you know when they understood what all was happening that we would have uh prices marked on the uh on the uh, shelf and uh, that uh, almost all the stores for the first five or 10 years uh, offered a generous like $10 or something like that if you got a false scan, if you got the wrong price. Uh, okay. And uh, so those problems all pretty much went away. California was uh, one of the law estates and that's where, uh, it, well, one of the things I, I was happening there in Los Angeles, uh, the Los Angeles the municipal government would follow uh, a delivery person who was delivering like milk or something into the store that required refrigeration immediately. And they'd put the milk in the counter where it was going to be sold, you know, which is, which is chilled. And then right behind him, the guy putting it in there would be, uh, the, uh, LA, uh, officer from uh, the LA municipality and and he would cite the store because the minute the guy put the milk in the uh, shelf on the shelf in the cooled shelf uh, it wasn't price marked and then of course the stores complained well they didn't have a chance to you know uh, do anything yet and so uh, that got to be a problem but the California law was written such that it would die at the end of the year if there weren't Violent objections. And so we were able to kind of communicate to all the people around that there are real advantages to this and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, at the end of the year, there were no objections and the law just died
1: and it it seems uh it seems crazy to say that now, but it, when you put it into context of you know protests in the late sixties and early seventies there 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 was a a real protest culture out there, and uh, something that people were were wary of for sure so
0: That's just right. no
1: out i I love your story about um the 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 old older lady who could go down to down the street with her receipt and and compare prices um I think one of my favorite things about barcodes is that to the outsider it seems like the cost of of the technology is mostly they're not really passed back to the consumer is that a fair assessment
0: well there there aren't very many costs so yeah it's a fair assessment uh because uh they actually make the operation of the supermarket much uh more efficient uh right. you just think about it uh you know prices are changing all the time usually going up right and right. uh so if, if you were shopping, uh, I remember when I was a little kid shopping for my mother, uh, I I could uh, fish to the back of the set of cans on a shelf and find one with a lower price because it had been marked <laughs> earlier uh, right. and uh, maybe not remarked. Or, or some of them were remarked and that that made the customers feel bad too because they saw, okay, it start off at $0.13 cents and then it was $0.15 cents and then $0.17 sure. cents and now I got to pay $0.21 because they could see all the old marks on there so uh in any event uh that 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 was uh you know that was a real issue uh, i kind of forgot my point there as to where we were going with that uh, in terms of being the cost being passed back to the consumer oh, yeah. it, it's the, 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 the efficiency right. of the stores you. is yeah. Yeah, where we Yeah so so uh the costs uh aren't so bad so right. uh, you know it in the first 5 years they were we they had to print uh, barcodes in the store and in real cheap printers or else the cost would have been really high and um, and then stick the label on the merchandise because uh, this was before the label was being put on by the general mills or by the post company or whatever that was manufacturing the product. You know, nowadays, 99.99% of all the labels go on at the factory, and they have to print something on the package anyway. And so they just right. put a little label on the corner. The cost is very, very, very tiny. Uh, right. And so um, I'm sure that cost does get passed on as part of the product, but it's very, very small. And but the efficiency of the supermarket is uh, increased tremendously because uh, they get automatic order uh reordering so before they had to run up and down the aisles and look at how many items were there and then you know uh hand write down uh, all of that and carry it to the back room now uh, every time you sell an item and it falls below some hit point that has been pre-programmed into the computer in the back of the store uh you you buy an item. And so there are only six left in the store and they say, okay, six is the number at which we reorder. Then the system automatically sends a signal to that supermarkets warehouse and tells them to put, you know, 20 more on the truck the next day or whatever. So that efficiency is uh, very, very helpful and makes the cost uh, of the operating a store go down. In addition to that, uh, there are a lot of, uh, other things about it. One of them is uh, sales. The efficiency of sales is so good because the store can decide, Hey, we're going to put this special product up by the check stand and see if it sells any better. Well, everything sells better there, but, uh, which ones get you the most, uh, revenue and profit increase. So you can test it in a store in three stores. Say you could do one in Los Angeles, one in Kansas city, one in New York and within an hour you can find out how that item sells better and how the item that used to be there that you took away is selling worse and do an analysis and oh yeah, it's better to put this item there than that and then you just send an order automatically to all the store managers in the country, do it this way and then they get an increased efficiency uh, by how to display their products more effectively. So there are all these kinds of things that work out uh, to be so much more effective. And uh, the checkout lines are a lot uh, faster and smoother too. So uh, the costs are passed down to the consumer, but they're very small compared to the savings. So I think the prices in supermarkets are lower now with the result of all this than they would be otherwise.
1: Absolutely, and and this is one of those technologies that um, kind of, I I, I suspect that, that the, the inventors, you know, they, it, it's used in a way that maybe you didn't even envision. I mean, is, oh, that's is that right. true? Have you ever looked at, have you ever looked at somebody's using, you know, what, what, you, what, what you, get, you and your team came up with and said, boy, I would have never thought of it for using it that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at cars. I mean, uh, every time you, 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 well, how many parts go into a car? Almost all of those mm-hmm. parts had a barcode on them when they started out at the assembly line and they 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 go to a bin because of their code and then they that bin has a code and that has another code that attaches to the one that it went to and uh there's a lot of automation and uh uh, you know uh, everything happens uh very effectively and so by the time you get done you have a car that's got i don't know how many thousand parts are in the car uh and all those Parts had their own little barcode on them at one point in time, and another barcode that told them what line it was going to go on to. And, right, you know, so- a, 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 a car comes down the line, and, you know, th- they make different kinds of cars on the same line and different models, and different, and th- the barcode tells them which to put where and everything. I mean, and also you can think of Amazon every time they sell you something, you know, I mean, What you ordered, where to send it, uh, what line it goes down, what else goes in the package, what size box it goes in. That's all barcoded and automatic and it transfers around and so on. And everything is made uh, very much more efficiently uh, to the tune, as you pointed out, 10 billion with a B of these things scanned every day. Uh, And uh, a lot of it isn't even the consumer. A lot of it is in the back rooms, uh, lining stuff up to, uh, you know, get, Manufactured, get assembled, and get mailed, and uh, come to you in the right place.
1: I was thinking that that QR codes, you know, to 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 the younger generation, QR codes are so much more out front. Um, and like barcodes are are the thing that's 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 kind of always been there, but yeah. the QR codes get the attention because right. you could be out anywhere, and then you use your phone on a QR code. Right. I still like getting a menu in my hand. I don't I don't like when you go to a restaurant you have yeah. to take a picture of the QR yeah. code. But yeah, um, well the, the QR we, code
0: is is uh, I I view it as a an extension of the barcode. The barcode you know we scan in a one line in one in one direction. Uh, and, uh, but with the QR code, uh, you take advantage of the fact that the computers, uh, and technology and integrated circuits are so much more effective now than they were before. So it's very easy to translate that add also the second dimension. So it's a really two dimensional, you know, I mean, it's an area thing, you know, you can scan right to left and pop to bottom. And, uh, so the QR code goes by little, uh, spatial squares. Uh, so they take up an area as opposed to just a line. And, right. uh, so it, it means that you have, uh, uh tremendously more data bits available on every code of uh, QR type than you do on the other. On the other hand, it's more complex and you have to scan it differently and so on and so forth. So I don't think it's going to uh, replace the barcode. The barcode is so simple, so easy, so, uh, so much done in so many places in the world. Uh, If you only need to put enough digits on to identify an item, then you don't need a QR code. Now, if you have uh, a different application and you want to know a whole bunch of things about uh, something, then the QR code is fantastic and uh, you can go with that. So I think the QR code is going to expand tremendously. uh, And there may be other things like RFID and so on and so forth, radio frequency identification that, uh, will come into play more so in the future. But I got a feeling that barcode, even though it's been there for 50 years, I think it's going to hang around for quite a lot longer because these other things aren't going to be as cheap. I mean, we're talking about fractions of, a of a cent, uh, to, to put them on the merchandise and so well, if if nothing else, I know it'll be with us through this this this
1: younger generation than me because I've actually seen barcode tattoos out there. Like, actually- <laughs> I haven't seen one of those. That's very good. <laughs> oh yeah, if you if you, uh, you go ahead and Google that, and it's I'm just like wait a minute, like, and it, to to that person it means something. So I'm just going to assume that they got their numbers right. <laughs>
0: yeah, I wonder if they have to put more their price on their nose or anything. You know, I mean. <laughs> it, (laughs) They take the price off when they put the barcode on. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Well, Paul, thanks so much for being here. I'm just looking, I I literally could go on for for an hour or two, but um, your new book, um, hold on. I just want to make sure I get it right. The Barcode, How a Team Created One of the World's Most Ubiquitous Ubiquitous Technologies is available where books are sold. I just want to say thank you so much time for taking the time to share your knowledge and insight with us. It was a real pleasure meeting you.
0: I really enjoyed it, Ed. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. So the story of the barcode is a fascinating tale of innovation. It's a great reminder of the power of innovating in teams and good leadership. Uh, Thanks again for sharing your tips for current business leaders looking to innovate and and build on their own legacies. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us. Make sure to follow and subscribe to Innovation Heroes wherever you get your podcast. Plus, new episodes are now available on YouTube like this one right now. We'll be back with another inspiring hero in two weeks. Until then, I'm your host, Ed McNamara, and this is Innovation Heroes. This episode is also brought to you by SHI's all new Generative AI Briefings. Uncover your roadmap to innovation with a series of briefings and workshops designed by our technology experts. Contact your account executive or visit shi.com to learn more about our all new executive briefings for Generative AI.